This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and I have been looking forward to this conversation with Christina Sharp for, oh, I don't know, weeks and weeks and weeks whenever we rescheduled it. You may know Christina's name from In the Wake, which is a seminal book that was published by Duke University Press, and Kiese Lehman and Hafiza Augustus Geter and Minjin Lee and Tiari Jones and Ya Jesse and Claudia Rankine and Ross Gay are just some of the writers who love this book. I'm a bookseller who happens to love this book. And when I saw, and I can't even remember when I heard that Ordinary Notes was coming out, but that's Christina's new book. And it is 248 notes, and we're going to talk about the structure, and we're going to talk about all of the beautiful things that pop up in this book. And I just remember thinking, oh, goody, now everyone gets to understand how great Christina's brain is. I'm going to try not to gush too hard at you because I really... It's like I, I was going to jump in. It's like, this is so generous. No, well, but I'm just going to hold my copy of the galley up to the screen so everyone can see. No, I'm really not kidding. There is, There may not be a dog-eared, an undog-eared page in my copy of the galley. So thank you, you know, for joining us. As a teacher, us. I love to see that, <laughs> right? I love, because that's what my books look like. Thank you so much. It's really lovely to join you and to meet you. This is a book, my notes are, this is a book about beauty and love and honesty and reality and so much. Can we talk about the structure though? Because some of these notes are a sentence, some of them are several pages, some of them bring in the work of other writers. I mean, there's so much to work with here. Sure. Um, well, I knew that so that so some of the notes actually began life as part of another book that I'm still okay. working on, which is okay. Black Still Life, which okay. will be published by Duke. But then there were a kind of series in that book of what I was calling encounters. Mm-hmm. And so at some point I realized I was giving a talk at a gallery and I realized I wanted to take those encounters and make them the basis of the talk that I was giving at the gallery. And so then I decided that I thought that that would be part of the structure of this book, that I wanted to have a book that made an argument, but made an argument through kind of accumulation and juxtaposition, and that that would allow me to do a different kind of work on the page and also with the the blank space, the the sort of white space, a kind of Mm -hmm. breathing space would allow for both accumulation, but also breath and respite and something else. I always love to sit with a word and try to activate as many senses or definitions of it as I can. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, both note and ordinary allowed me to do that, though the structure is really note. On a purely sentence level, I mean, I'm really not kidding when I say there is not a single undog-eared page. And yes, there are people with feelings about dog-earing, but I am a very very (laughs) active reader. I am a very, very active reader. And I feel like you had me thinking in so many different directions. And there's also four color art throughout the book, which I love. I just, it's such a marvelous sensory experience, which you don't always get on the page. And I love the idea of you leaving space for us to breathe as the reader, because there's so much. And there were times where I didn't want to race through this book. And I'm a very quick reader, Mm -hmm. but there were things I really wanted to linger on. There's a lot of grief 
too in this book. I mean, we can't ignore that, but I think anyone who reads knows that sometimes there's a lot of beauty that comes out of grief. Yes. When did you start working on this book? Well, I used to have a file on my desktop called Notes Towards Something. Okay. And so I would write little <laughs> sentences and put them in. So I think a few of the notes I I tried to think about, some of them are quite quite old or things that I, you know, obviously some of my obsessions yeah. are, in, are in this book. You know, the note um, that's really about this American life. Yeah. You know, I've been thinking about that since like 2008. And this gave me an opportunity to fully write out what I'd been thinking mm-hmm. about it. Um, so some of the notes are are things I've sat with for some time, but I'd say the majority of it I wrote in about a year and a half. And you would ask me something about the sort of varying length of the notes. That's the other thing I really liked about the kind of form of the note is that I could just have a note that was a sentence like a dictionary suggests itself, which would still build and move sort of backwards and forwards. And the note gave me the the form in order to make the kind of arguments and invitations and gestures and remonstrations <laughs> that I wanted to make. At the risk of this sounding slightly weird, if I ever get a tattoo, I can tell you now what the line will be. I have collected, oh, what will it be? I have collected lines and they have collected me, which is something that you said it's note 102. And I sort of want to start there because you talk so much about the books that have made you. Again, you go back to seminal texts. I was so happy to see John Keane pop up in multiple places. Oh, I love him. In Ordinary Notes, I think yeah. he is the bomb. He really is. I mean, and I would say that, you know, Annotations is a book and yeah. a form that deeply mm-hmm. impacted me. And yeah. I teach counter narratives as often as I can. You know, I feel like I proselytize about that book. Counter Narratives right. is an amazing, amazing, amazing book. I was very, very happy to see Punks get quite a so lot was of I. love. So was I. He's that, an amazing poet, you know, fiction writer, translator, essayist. But I do want to talk about some of the books that got us to this point, to Ordinary Notes, mm-hmm. because I was delighted to see that you and I have very similar childhood reading experiences. Paddington, oh, Little House on the Prairie, books. <laughs> Francis. Oh, Bread and Jam for Francis. Bedtime for Francis. (laughs) I love those books when I was little. Yeah, your mom was a big part of books. And you have this lovely story about your mom and her Sunday afternoon teas. Yeah. Can we start there? Because I just, I feel like she's so much a part of this book. And yet she asked you to never write about her. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but I think she'd be happy with what I've written. Oh, I think um, so too. <laughs> yeah. My, you know, as I say, there's a, there's a note in which I talk about Tony Cade Bambara's. I always feel like it's the introduction that she wrote to maybe Gorilla My Love, mm-hmm. in which mm-hmm. she talks about, it's, she says it's 1948 and she's sitting on the floor in her kitchen and her mother mops around her. Mm-hmm. And so she thanks her mother for, um, for that space, for giving her that space. And that exact thing didn't happen, but that's something that, you know, my mother did not think that if I was reading, I was doing nothing. My mother thought right. if I was reading, I was definitely doing something. Right. And so she gave me the space to to read. And she, you know, every birthday, Christmas, you know, my mother would say gifts for the body, gifts for the mind, gifts for the soul. And there were always multiple books. And we read together and she loved to read. She had a beautiful you know, I was raised Catholic. We're the only Black family in our Catholic church. 
um, and my mother, once women were allowed to become lectors, she mm-hmm. was a lector. Oh, and wow. people would come to the mass. They were like, oh, Ida Sharp is reading. They would come to the mass just to hear her read. And so, you know, she really gifted me with a, a, a love of language um, and a love of what what reading and writing could could do for you. You know, I had no Black teachers until I got to university. You know, anything that I learned about uh, Black history, I learned through the books that she gave me. Any Black authors I read were because of the books that she gave me until I got to university. And one of the things I really want to stress about Ordinary Notes, too, and usually we, on the show, will ask writers, you know, who they've been reading or who some mm-hmm. There is so much greatness. And I have to check my notes for a second because you have a couple of notes where you talk about looking for the books. Yeah, there's a note, 203, a feeling you wanted or needed to feel, and you're talking about yeah. the books. Yeah, and, not, and that's not necessarily a book that you even love. Right, right. right? So, I mean... I think I say in there, like, The Golden Notebook. There are things I love about The Golden Notebook, but it's not a book that I sort of overall love. But, you know, there's something about that, like, produced a certain kind of feeling or a a kind of, you know, intellectual spark or something. Um, And I first read it in a graduate seminar, and um, then I came to, to really kind of love it in another way. Um, Yeah, but there are many books like that. You also talk about Lydia Davis. Oh, yeah. Which I so appreciate. And the fury. (laughs) You know, I reread the end of the story again recently when I was writing the notes. Like I went back and read. um, I I went back and read it. And I thought, yeah, this, you know, sitting next to her when she came to Tufts English Department and saying, you know, I hope you don't think this is strange, but that book really helped me. (laughs) And she really did. She looked at me. She was like, I think she understood why or she was just being generous either way. I so appreciate the world she can make in a story of four lines. And I'm going back to note 205 for a second, which opens with a quote from the poet Dion Brandt, which is quite lovely, but I'm going to jump down for a tiny second because you write books, poetry, fiction, nonfiction, theory, memoir, biography, mysteries, plays have always helped me locate myself. Yes. And you grew up in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. You're a professor in Canada now. Yes. You're a Black queer woman in America in the 21st yeah. century. Yeah. And yet books, and again, sometimes you want to feel a thing that doesn't necessarily feel great. But it's true. books have always <laughs> been there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and it's good if you want to, you know, feel that thing and you can locate it in a book. Yeah. You don't have right. to do it in the world. <laughs> right. I'm a big rereader. And that's part of the reason I reread, you know, and I can reread nonsense. I reread a lot of nonsense. Um, I, my mother was a big mystery reader. So I reread like Dick Francis novels, Ruth Rendell novels, like P.D. James. I'm, I, I, I'm a rereader of mystery, partially because like I don't have to hold on to the plot. I don't have to hold on to anything. I'm still thinking. It's also kind of comforting. And it's a kind of when I when I was in graduate school and I got to the point where I thought I never want to read another book. <laughs> um, it was actually... <laughs> Which you, which you know happens. Yes, absolutely. You know, oh, we all go through dry patches. We all go through. And it's through. also like, I, you know, I, I was naive. I didn't know anything about graduate school. I thought, oh, mm-hmm. I love literature. I'm going to go to get a PhD mm-hmm. in literature. It, that's not what a PhD is for. <laughs> it can drive the love of literature out of you. So mm-hmm. when I was like, I, I, for like six months, I could barely read anything. I thought, okay, I'm going to reread 
And it's rereading that got me back into then reading and reading new things and reading the things I should be reading, etc. And I also think no reading is is lost on you. Everything is useful for something. It's funny, you know, certainly when we're producing sort of two to three hours a week of original audio, the mm-hmm. the reading memories that pop back while you're working on something or the things that you can be thinking about or the reasons that you read. I mean, there are people who read for comfort. There are people who read yeah. for education or entertainment, whatever. Everyone has their reasons mm-hmm. for reading. And I'm always kind of amazed when a weird detail pops up about a book that I haven't thought about in ages, but you're just listening to the other person talk and you're like, oh, wait, you know, it all just becomes layers Mm -hmm. of whatever we are. And I love the way that you talk about emotion and what that connection between books and emotion. I think, you know, we see it a lot, honestly, on TikTok. (laughs) Uh, Which which I actually don't watch. No, but young at, well, I'm in the book business. I can't not. But um, at the same time, when I see adults and young adults really Mm -hmm. responding, it's wild because there are times where I just want to read for language and I don't necessarily want to read for any kind. And then there are also times where, frankly, I'm reading for homework. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Yes, I'm reading for teaching, which is, you know, I get to choose the books I teach. Absolutely. You know, when did you know that Ordinary Notes was something that was going to stand on its own? And it wasn't just a document on your laptop. I think it was Lynn Henry, who is the editor-in-chief at Knopf Canada, um, was in the backyard talking to my partner. And and then at some point uh, turned to me. I mean, I, I knew Lynn already and asked me, so what are you working on, Christina? <laughs> and I said, well, I had just gotten this letter and it's one of the redacted notes in there. I yeah. think it's note 15. Okay. And I said, well, and so I went and I got my laptop and I, I read her the letter and I think, and I said, you know, I think this is, you know, this, this kind of pushed me even further into thinking about this as a project of sometimes short, sometimes longer notes. And she said, well, you know, how much do you have? And I said about 60 pages. And she said, can I read it? And I said, okay. <laughs> the next day I sent it to her. And I think if she hadn't asked that, it would still be on my laptop and I'd still be writing it. I'd still be I'd still be thinking about it as something I would do gradually or maybe nothing would come of it. And so it's really that she asked me what I was working on and said, you know, I really like this and I would really like to acquire this. And I thought, oh, and then that's what I really wanted to be writing. I love the serendipity of that. It was, yeah. Because this book is so organic. I mean, at points you're talking about photos of your grandmother and your mother and learning who your mother might become. And then that leads you to a point where you say, well, I haven't lived my mother's life. I've had a very different life. And it's you're taking us through these revelations. And we start very clearly in the past. Yes. And you keep moving us closer to the present day. And there's that piece you refer, you know, sort of this American life from 08, Mm -hmm. but there's also some work that clearly was written in the summer of 2020, which at this point feels like a lifetime ago. It really does. All of that energy feels like a lifetime ago. It does. But did you know that was the path you were going to take as you sort of worked through? I sort of feel like you always knew where you were going, but I don't want to assume. I mean, that's interesting, you know. 
And I also want to, bef- before I answer that question, okay. I also want to say that, you know, the other person, you know, so there was Lynn Henry at Knopf yeah. and Eric Chinsky at FSG and Eric at, has been such a wonderful, wonderful editor. And together they were just like, I couldn't have asked for better, for, for better people to work with. You know, I, I, in a sense, yes, I think I did because I moved very few notes around. I only moved oh, like wow. two or three notes, the okay. order in which I kept adding notes. Uh-huh. And so, so it was kind of a nightmare because <laughs> note one, I was like, okay, now I have to go through and change it. You know, um, what was note 11 because I put two, 111 because I put two notes in there is now note, you know, 115. But I mostly wrote them in the order in which they appear. And so um, I, I had, so I think I had a sense of movement. I then had to figure out, well, you know, how do I want to think about a kind of a kind of sequencing and is there a logic? But I think anybody who knows me who listens to this will say, like she says this all the time, but this is again my obsessions. You know, I, I don't think particularly logically, or my logic is a logic of juxtaposition juxtaposition I really do think juxtapositionally so I always kind of had a sense of what I wanted next to what because of what I thought that might open up so I I I did have a sense of movement yet to hear you say you begin clearly in the past and then you move forward I hadn't really thought about that (laughs) that's how it felt for me as a reader Mm -hmm. I mean I but I do think that's true I love the idea of juxtaposition and using that to reveal that does not feel illogical to me I mean, I don't think it is. Yeah, no, no. Other people yeah, might. You and I clearly agree. I'm just thinking. <laughs> we do. Those other people are getting it wrong. They're wrong. <laughs> because honestly, when you think about, especially where we are in the world right now, mm-hmm. we seem to be breaking into a binary wherever we are. Yeah. No matter what the conversation is, whether it's about art or literature or television or film or, you know, daily life or community or all of these ideas. We've split into a binary and Mm. people seem to be much more comfortable in that sort of black and white space. And I'm one of those people who's like, no, no, the world is gray. Mm -hmm. The world is gray. Mm -hmm. Books are gray. Everything, like there's always the gray area and that's the space that we actually live in. And Mm -hmm. I love this idea of juxtaposing notes. It's not that I don't have like firm ideas. I really, really do. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I love the possibility of what might happen by putting the unexpected things next to each other. Like, what does that spark? Maybe it does. Maybe it sparks nothing new or interesting, mm-hmm. but maybe it does. And maybe it causes us to think differently about things we thought we knew. Or maybe it causes us mm-hmm. to expand or contract what we thought we knew or saw, or heard, or understood. I mean, isn't that why you write? I think so, and that's also why we read. Oh, completely. Well, that's part of the reason I read, mm-hmm. you know? Like, one of the things that was a real gift um, in, in working on the book and in having early conversations with both Lynn and Eric were the kind, like, I thought I knew where I wanted to go. And I had this lovely conversation with Eric and Deborah Gim, who was working on the book at the time, before she before she left to become an associate editor, I think at Astro. Mm-hmm. I had a couple of notes that were definitions, and I said, you know, I was really interested in this project, the the dictionary of untranslatable blackness. And Eric said, I really think that should be a part of the book. 
so that did become section six of the book. And it's a kind of chorus. I think it's 18 people who I invited to write, to write notes, um, all said yes, and wrote these beautiful, beautiful definitions of words like elegance and time and archive, liquidity, um, you know, the, 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 the 18 people who respond to life. And so that was also this other, you know, like what happens if you inhabit a word as we inhabit words, as mm-hmm. we inhabit concepts, and define it from the position of Black thought, mm-hmm. um, of Black living. Uh, and so that was this other kind of beautiful sort of choral moment that isn't quite juxtaposition, but it is, you know, what happens when you have, you know, Alexis Pauline Gums next to Biko Mandela Gray, yep. next to Ronaldo Walcott, next to Phoebe yep. Boswell, defining life. Something else happens. Something else is made in those articulations that I think is quite lovely. There's so much tenderness in this book. And you do have a note that very specifically talks about tenderness, but the dictionary of that you're talking about, all of it is so tender and it's so wonderful. And even when we're talking about things that are difficult Mm -hmm. and hard and will make people uncomfortable, there is so much tenderness and so much love in ordinary notes. And I really don't want to lose sight of that. I deeply appreciate that because, you know, it's not that it wasn't difficult to write. It was, but I really hope that there was also, that it was infused with the other things that were, you know, a joy to write even as they were difficult, or that tenderness that goes through it, or kind of hands that go through it, and hands is both. And often the hands are tenderness um, as they appear in the text. I'm so glad that that came through to you. I couldn't ask for more. Did writing this book change you? Did it free you Mm. up in a way? Because, I mean, academic Mm -hmm. writing is, in the wake, it is a monograph. It's a very important monograph, but it Mm -hmm. is still written for... It's not necessarily a book that people would search out unless the word of mouth was behind it. And I can't even yeah. remember who, it might have been Min Jin Lee, honestly, who told me about it. But I know someone specifically said to me, oh, you should read this. And I said, yes, of course, I should. It's very short, but I couldn't race through it. I yes. really needed to sit. And I love the metaphor and the way you can use wake language is yeah. so mutable and malleable and it's just it's isn't it amazing when it works it's great yeah. it really is <laughs> who could ask for like better work and you know the things that you do but again it is you know it's it is more academic and is, a little yeah. less pliable in some mm-hmm. ways than ordinary notes and ordinary notes i mean certainly claudia rankine's just us comes to mind but i don't think i've ever experienced a book like this before just between the formatting Mm -hmm. the ideas i mean because i've read you before certainly but also you know if you read black writers there Mm -hmm. are concepts that are going to be familiar there are going to be names that are familiar but the way you structure it and your voice you're doing something really new here Thank you. And it's exciting. It's really exciting to be part of this. And and I really want people to just not make assumptions before mm. they pick it up. Like I got really excited when I saw the jacket. Yes. <laughs> that was um, made, it made me really happy. This is, I mean, it's a galley, but this is what the jacket is going to look like. There we go. When you take the jacket off. <gasps> oh, I cannot wait. <laughs> <laughs> they did such a beautiful, beautiful wait. job. The designer, Jen Griffin, that was Jen's idea. 
they just, she just did a beautiful, beautiful job. And from the beginning, as I said, like Lynn, and who was my first editor, was just like, we're going to make it a beautiful book, Christina. Don't worry. We're going to make it a beautiful object. And they and Lynn and Eric and then Daunt in the UK also made a beautiful, beautiful text. Is it a paperback so this is one, in the This UK? is a photograph that I took that they made the, the cover. <laughs> it's paperback. Yeah. It's paperback in the UK and it has a Jennifer Packer cover. I have, um, I will confess, I have occasionally bought books from the UK just to have covers. Absolutely. I am one of those people. I am, t- so am, I am I. shameless. It's just like, so I know I. I have a copy of this, but it's, I need. Who needs just one copy? We need, we need multiple. No, I, I can't. But again, it's this life of books yeah. and connecting with people who aren't necessarily Exactly like you. I mean, I was. Ne- I, I finished my BA. It was lovely. I had a very good time. I got very good grades, and then I was done. <laughs> I was like, "Hello, world. Yes. I'm here." There was going to be no. You know, I had a very good time in school. I liked it quite a lot, and then I was done. <laughs> yeah. I was like, "Let me see how long I can draw this out," and I didn't necessarily have a good time. <laughs> right, but I chose a life though of books, and I chose a life where connecting the dots for people. And projects and ideas is... And your your love of books and your relationship to reading is so clear and the, the joy comes out in your, in your speaking. And that's a real pleasure to engage with. It's so important to you. And thank you for that. But it's so important to be able to sit with other ideas and other people and language. I keep coming back to language, but language really matters. I mean... It does. You and I both read so widely that, you know, there are times where I read for language, there's time I read for character, and I don't have to Mm -hmm. like characters to be able to stay with a book. Exactly. Sometimes I read for feeling, but I'm also an ex-Bostonian, and we're not really, that's not a factory preset. Like, we're not really good at that. (laughs) (laughs) That's very funny. I I can recognize it. (laughs) But I'm not programmed for that. (laughs) Yeah, not always, not always. Also, there are certain books, you know, you were talking about rereading earlier, and... Mm -hmm. I forget who I was talking to. It was just the other night, but John Cheever's Wapshaw Chronicle came up and I was like, oh, my party trick used to be, able, I used to be able to just recite the last paragraph of that book huh. just as a party That's very trick. funny. Well, it's Leander, you know, it's Leander's letter to his sons. And I don't know why. <laughs> I have no idea well, why I learned it. I have no idea. That's very funny. What- I will tell you my party I mean, trick. <laughs> well, Cheever, well, Cheever, I mean, dude can write without a doubt, but yeah. I'm like, why that 18 year old me decided that that was a nifty i mean i, I 16 also 16 year old me decided that of human bondage was my book so when oh, wow. i when i of <laughs> human bondage somerset mom yep oh i know was that. just a racist misogynist etc uh, all and of it when i graduated from high school i was a commencement speaker mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i quote i mean Oh gosh, 16 year old me, 18 year old me, 17 year old, I was 17. And like my graduation, because there's that moment when it's like the kind of enumeration of all Philip's miseries. And it's like, and Philip was happy. Philip realized there was no happiness and Philip was happy. You know, I quoted that in my commencement speech. Oh, wow. (laughs) Wow. That tells you everything probably about 17 year old Christina. Uh, uh, (laughs) Human Bondage was her go-to book. I read that book so many times. Game recognizes game because honestly, I read that by the pool on vacation, (laughs) probably around the same age. I used to, 
and that I still have sort of a fondness for Graham Greene, but I, you know, I did the entire Graham Greene opus, and I'm like, huh, I had a lot of time on <laughs> How did I do that? Oh, wow. It's so funny. It was a formative, I mean, yeah, I realized the, the sort of deep racism and everything else yeah. in that, right? But also it, it taught me something deep at that age about the futility of this thing called happiness. Right. But there were other ways that you might structure finding joy or structure your life than around this kind of consumer good of yeah. happiness, right? I think joy can be fleeting, but again, joy doesn't exist if you don't have grief. Like the idea that you always live in one state, right? it doesn't work. We can aspire to certain things, sure, but there are also times where, honestly, I just want to stare at a wall. I need space. Mm-hmm. Sometimes yes. I need to stare at a wall. Sometimes I just need to go for a walk. Like mm-hmm. It can't always just be the search for the thing that makes you sort of go, not oh, yeah, all. this is it. This is it. And you, your eyes no. get big and all of that. And Absolutely not. I appreciate that, too, in books. And especially you do this quite a lot in Ordinary Notes, where I have a flash of recognition. Those redacted notes that you mm-hmm. referred to early in the top of the show. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I had so much identification. and. No, Mm. I didn't grow up in Pennsylvania. (laughs) Massachusetts isn't that far off. But, you know, I love the idea that while you and I have different stories, I don't think there was a single page where I didn't have a moment of, oh, wow. And sometimes it was an intellectual response, but a lot Mm. of times it was, okay. And I don't get that with every book that I read. So when it happens that frequently... It, it makes that. me kind of sit up a little straighter and go, hey, what's going on here? What is this? Oh. How did she do this? How did Christina do this? And I think a lot of it is you're just very observant and you take a lot of notes. <laughs> Pardon <laughs> yes. the play on your title, but. Yes. And I'm obsessive. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Obsessive doesn't hurt, but I do mm-hmm. feel like you pay attention to details and people. Mm-hmm in a way that books may have taught you, but yeah, there's yeah. something a little beyond that. Can we talk about that for a second? Sure. Certainly, I think, I think books taught me, but I'm terrible at like recounting plot. But I can recount certain details, and it will take me, I have to recount all of those details to eventually get to, okay, well, the plot is this, right? I think just certain things land in me, and even when a part of me is not consciously paying attention to them yeah I'm working on them and they are working on me and that's Mm -hmm. why you know I've collected lines and they've collected me they really have and so there are certain things that I think get activated that I'm not even necessarily aware of but then they come back to me and I realize oh I've kind of been thinking about this all along right and so when you asked me about um, sort of being freed of something after writing the book or freed in form. I'd say both freed in form and freed from certain obsessions that I don't think I oh. have to return to anymore. That's a beautiful thing as well. Like I think each thing, and I feel so lucky to be able to, you know, to have written three books and to be working on some other things. Um, Cause that wasn't at all a given to me that I would write anything past monstrous intimacies, which was like oh. partially my dissertation and then three new chapters. Oh, that was such a slog. I was like, do I really want to write books? Oh, I did. <laughs> but then writing that. in the wake. Yeah. You know, my editor, Ken Whisaker, mm-hmm. um, I was working on another book then too. And my editor, Ken Whisaker, you know, said, well, that's interesting. 
but you know, let, let's see how it develops. And then I, I emailed him and said, well, I'm thinking about this other thing. He said, oh, definitely. I want that. And I went in and I said, you know, this is how I'm thinking about, I want to write it. So yes, it's an academic book, but I also want it to be able to be read by people across educational backgrounds. And he said, write the book that you want to write. And mm-hmm. that was deeply freeing. And I feel like each thing that I've worked on makes its own form. So it's been a real joy to be able to formally shift how I want to approach a text. I love the idea of each text having its own form, but I do want to shout out Duke for a second because this jacket. Yeah. This jacket is crazy great. This jacket. <laughs> you keep getting And that's of course in Boston. Uh, yeah. <laughs> At the ICA. Mm-hmm. I thought I recognized that. It's yeah. been a minute, but yeah. I thought I recognized Cornelia that. Parker. I saw something recently of hers in Los Angeles that I really quite liked. But also adding the art, I'm going to use that for a second, because mm-hmm. adding the art to Ordinary Notes, I honestly wasn't expecting, I was delighted. How did you decide that that had to be a piece of the, because I feel like your work is so evocative, mm-hmm. and yet I would, all of the photos are fantastic. I mean, it's just, it's so good. But when did you decide we needed photos too? I mean, I, I've already narrated about four beginnings to Ordinary Notes. <laughs> yeah. So this is another beginning that I've also narrated. Is uh, I was in Los Angeles to do something at the Underground Museum with Saidia Hartman. Love that and space. And I had, oh, it was a beautiful space. I miss that space so much. Just for f- listeners who don't know what it was, it was an amazing, amazing art space. And of course, every time I went in, I bought more books. <laughs> What am I doing? But I only got I lo- to go there once and it was fantastic. I loved supporting them, but also the bath. Do you remember the bathrooms? There was the bathroom oh. for black people and the bathroom for white people. And just the way the bathrooms that. were designed. So one yeah. of the bathrooms was very elaborate and lush and wonderful. And, and then the other bathroom was like basically a closet. And <laughs> it was a play yeah. on Jim Crow. It was just, right. it was a really... I think, I, you know, now moment. that you say that, it's coming back to me as right. a memory because one is really large. Yes, and right? that's yeah, and yeah. that's a, yeah. yeah, and it yeah. just it it was a really good way to keep you grounded in the space and grounded yeah, in the ideas, true. the gallery, and then the beautiful outdoor garden. Oh, right, space, right? Yeah, no, which I, is where we we had the event. Oh, wow! But but Saidia and I had lunch earlier in the day, and she asked me, you know, what are you working on? And I, told her the two projects I was wor- I wanted to work on. And then I showed her the pictures of my mother and grandmother that appear in the book. And she said, um, you should work on that one. It's the more difficult one. You know how to do the other. And it changed because I was doing, I was going to do this other thing. And part of it is in, in ordinary notes and part of it may not be anywhere else, but it may. Um, but yeah, thinking about my mother told, uh, you know, these wonderful kind of painful stories about, about her childhood and, and childhood friends who died and and they've informed who I am and I, I so love those photographs and I wanted the, the opportunity to read them and think about how we are constructed and how we construct ourselves. Is that what made this book difficult? That that Partially. having to sit with with the ideas that we use to construct ourselves? I mean Partially and having to sit with various violences and you know against ourselves and others around us. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was it was difficult, and so I'm glad that you say that. Despite that difficulty, that uh, that that sort of tenderness comes through, not just in the notes, in which no. tenderness is at the center of the notes. I trusted you completely, and 
I love it when that happens with a book. It's not every book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not every book. But I was so compelled. And again, I didn't want to put it down, but I didn't want to rush. Mm-hmm. And that I think is really an important way to approach what you're doing in ordinary notes that, you know, sometimes you're going to want to read a little bit. Yeah. And then go do a thing and come back. Yeah. And sometimes you're going to want to sit for a long period. I think a form that allows for that oh, in completely. a way in which, you know, there are books that I've started and then had to do something else and I have to go back, you know, and reread, reread, reread. And so, yeah, I think, I think the form allows for that. And it allows for, I mean, what I hope is for both an accumulation of thinking and feeling. Mm-hmm. I think having read it through as it is exactly, you know, in the, in the galley, I think having read through it once, now I sort of feel like I can go back and dip in. Mm-hmm. and out. But I am going to say, I would recommend that it's read for the first time, start to finish. And then you go mm-hmm. back. I mean, the, the way you sort of reach a crescendo. Thank you so much for your, for your reading. Yeah. Really. I'm just a giant book nerd, but you've made a really important thing. And I just want people to understand how important this book is. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> But I would say, you know, the first time you sit down with a book, really do go from start to finish, follow how Christina has laid out these notes, and then go back. I mean, I've been thinking about museums a lot. You have feelings about museums that you and I have similar feelings about museums. Let's put it that way. But moments that I know I will come back to, Mm -hmm. lines that I want to come back to, certainly your book lists. I mean, I did have a moment of sort of Oh, right. Okay. You've read that too. Oh, you've read that too. You've read that. Which book? It's, oh, oh, okay. Hold on. 203, 204, 205. I just have to. Oh, uh, that's the sort of crowdsourced. Oh, it yeah. is. But I'm pretty sure a lot of it is you too. You went on to Twitter yes. and you said, <laughs> what books or books produced a feeling you wanted or needed to feel? And then suddenly it's, you know, things like The Yellow House and mm. Where Reasons End by Ian book. Lee. Mm-hmm. Oh, the Yellow House is magic. I am um, the year she won the National Book Award. I was um, banging on the table. Mm-hmm. I was that person. I was making so much noise. Sister Outsider, Audre Lorde, Book of Delights, lots of Dion Brand too, and oh, Frank O'Hara's collected poems popped up, and I was like, oh yeah, actually, those I get that. Homegoing, yeah, Jesse's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anne Carson. I mean, there's mm-hmm. so much, and I feel like. Because you read so broadly, too. I mean, yeah, I know it was crowdsourced, but... Yes, and it really was. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 I, 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 I do understand, and it's a shame that Twitter is no longer a useful thing, but... Yeah, exactly. I love the way all of those titles and the notes or the tweets come to life. Yeah. And I do feel like they reflect you. And I do feel like there's overlap with your personal taste. And I do. And oh, I had a moment of just. And then there's also not. But yeah, but yeah absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Oh, there's some stuff in there where I was like, uh, no, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then there are books that like I'm obsessed with that I haven't written on. But I used to teach like a book like um, Obasan. Oh, I'm The so Joy obsessed. Kagawa. Oh, I love that novel. And I, I always think of it like I think. Obasan and Beloved were published in the same year. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the kind of beauty of the language and like um, Naomi's rage at the end, you know, about they said we were happy and these photographs picking beats. This is what it was really like when she finally like 
experiences the rage that she kind of inhabits and tamps down. I just think there's something about about the way that Morrison writes Beloved and Kagawa writes Obasan, that there's some deep connection for me. Maybe it's a connection of feeling for me, but I think there's some Mm -hmm. other kind of, like the beauty of the language. You know, you don't think that a novel that or a text that describes horror is going to be beautiful. I mean, that's the same thing. And I can't read it in French, but that's the same thing like reading, and these are not novels, these are, are memoirs, Charlotte Delbo's, the series Auschwitz and After. Yeah. I mean, the, the astonishing clarity of language in something like None of Us Will Return. You simply don't, I mean, I think, I think like in the intro, I think Lawrence Langer calls them like prose ice sculptures or something. And they, you know, so... So I think that's the kind of sort of thread between some texts that that describe brutality with a kind of crispness and clarity of language that's kind of astonishing. I think it's also slightly easier for me as a reader because I refuse to turn away and not everyone reads like that. It's really important for me as a reader, not just as a bookseller, but as a reader, um, to make sure that I'm not, I mean, and also I did read D.H. Thomas's White Hotel Mm -hmm. for the first time at a very young age. And then I went back later. I have never read it. I'm still sort of processing how I feel about it, but I'm still very glad I read it. I was probably 12 or 13. I haven't read it and I know that's way too young. Yeah, no, no, no. In a sense, right? Yeah, no, exactly. And but at the same time, I was punching above my weight for a really long time when I was reading. Yeah, um, so was I. It's what we did. I mean, we were mm-hmm. just let loose in the library, you know, and yes. raised by wolves a tiny bit on my end. But I mean, <laughs> everyone was sort of like, well, it's books. And also, I read a lot of stuff that was not high art. I'm not going to, you know, make fun of it. I remember but... sneaking to my sister's room and reading, like, looking for Mr. Goodbar. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, I mean, like nine. Or something. I have, I have read some of Michael Corder's oeuvre. Yeah. I mean, yes. <laughs> like, you know, it's also a period sort of in the world where, you know, YA wasn't what it is now. And we sort of right. read whatever we could or whatever the adults had lying around or whatever you yeah. found in the library that no one stopped you from reading. <laughs> exactly. You could just hide in the stacks and read what you wanted to read. Yeah, there was a lot. There was Which a is lot. Like, what a time we are once again living in. When people yeah. are trying, all of these people are, are trying to defund libraries. Right. And, you know, yeah. I'm a very grateful library kid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I may be an adult now, but yeah. libraries were magical, magical places um, for me growing up. What's next for you? I mean, this is this is not a small book. This is this is a big, epic, beautiful Thank work you. of art. But what's next? I'm still working on the the Black Still Life okay. book, but I'm also working on a book called What Could a Vessel Be, and that expands um, an essay that I wrote for the uh, catalog for the Biennale um, for the Milk of Dreams. Oh, it sort of works from Ursula Le Guin's carrier bag uh, theory of fiction, yeah. but also then looks at um, some of the artists who were in the show, not so much to reproduce readings of individual works, though I, mm-hmm. I do sort of talk about the works, but to really sort of think through and inhabit the kind of possibility and impossibility of the vessel. And I, and I would like to keep working on that. So it's going to be a very small book. Okay. And it will be published by Knopf and FSG in 2025. I'm, I will come back to working on it. So that's that's what I'm working on. 
I am really looking forward to reading that. I'm really, really, really looking forward to reading that. Christina Sharp, thank you so much. Ordinary Notes is out now. If you have not yet read In the Wake, I cannot recommend it enough. And, you know, I gave you all of the writers at the top of the show who love this book. So really, you should read that too. Christina, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's been a real, real pleasure um, to speak with you. I'm Ewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and I have been waiting for this conversation. I have been so looking forward to this conversation. You guys have no idea. Ava Chin is a professor and a writer, and her new book is Mott Street. And I'm going to ask Ava to set this up because this book, Mott Street, it's the Angela's Ashes for Chinese Americans. Straight up. I've said this to Ava before. I've said it to her editor. I've said it to her publicist, and now I'm saying it on the show. This is the Angela's Ashes for Chinese people, without a doubt. Ava, I'm so happy to see you. I love this book. You know I love this book, but set it up for listeners, would you? Sure. So how I like to describe the book is that it's about the impact of the Chinese Exclusion Act laws on four generations of my family Mm -hmm. in New York City's Chinatown. I trace their journey from the southern part of China out to the American West, where folks worked on the railroad, folks had hand laundries in the Sierra Nevada. And then when the tides turned against us and the Chinese Exclusion Act laws came about, um, there was an incredible amount of anti-Asian sentiment in the country. And my family members had to make a decision. Do we stay here in California or Idaho or do we flee? Do we go back home or do we go out to a place called New York, a city called Mott Street? where there was a burgeoning Chinese-American community out there. Both sides of my family ended up living in the same tenement apartment building in the heart of the community on Mott Street as upstairs-downstairs neighbors from each other. And it is also where I have a key to an apartment in the building where we have lived continuously for over 100 years. And it's also where I'm speaking to you from today. Which I love that continuation. That just makes me so happy. Your great-great-uncle, Deck Foon, is the first member of your family who showed up. And that was 1886? Correct. That right? Okay. So 1886, Deck Foon shows up. He goes to Angel Island first because that's how it was done, right? In 1886, Angel Island didn't exist. Okay. Right? Okay. Angel Island is like built in like 1910. Okay, my so bad. Sorry. Yeah, no, it's okay. <laughs> um, it can get kind of confusing. In the early days... Um, because of Chinese exclusion, Chinese immigrants got stuck at the wharf. Oh, in San Francisco. Okay. Yes. Yes. So we think of the wharf as like this very fun, beautiful place, the ferry building, Mm -hmm. all that. But in fact, there were areas that like these wood, these giant wooden warehouses that Chinese people got stuck in. And Chinese people called, called it like the wood house. So, so he got stuck there. Okay. Before we go too, too deep, into your family's stories. I want to point out you have 15 first cousins on your father's side alone. Yeah. And you talk to a lot of them. You, this is a combination of first person document research in archives that I didn't even know existed, but also picking up the phone and talking to your people and your cousins are scattered all over the U S right? Yeah. They're all over the country. The cousins, the uncles, um, they're all over the country. So a large part of Doing the research was um, me going out, schlepping out to different parts of the country to talk to them. And also being kind of stealth, right? Like 
weddings and funerals are great places where people come to meet. And it's also where people like to talk and one-up themselves. So I was able to get a lot of information at these family gatherings. Okay. How many interviews though with family members is that? Uh, it's, uh, I would have to count it out, but right. it's definitely more than 50. Right. So I'm just laying the groundwork here for a ton of questions went into this book. A ton of research went into this book. I mean, it's shot through with photos, which I love. I mean, your family, it's wild to see photos of your family, like just looking like New Yorkers. I mean, yeah. there's so many times where, especially as Asian Americans, we get fed a sort of pictorial narrative mm. that doesn't necessarily match our family stories. And I mean, I don't think anyone enjoys wearing a Victorian corset or whatever, but but there was great grandma. I love these photos. These photos are important. Who had them? Where did you find them? So on my mother's side of the family, my mm -hmm. grandparents, my grandmother was the inheritor okay. of uh, this giant, these giant family albums. And when she passed away, um, I inherited them. And then on my dad's side, you know, different uncles had them. So you've just got to go chasing through the family. I have to say, so my grandfather's mother so my great-grandmother i had to think for a second because there are lots of people in my family i finally saw a photo of her maybe 10 years ago and i was like oh hi we're related yeah. <laughs> and yeah. there are a couple of recent photos where i really look like my grandmother and then there are a couple of recent photos where i really look like my mom and i'm like so apparently all of the women in my family are just going to show up on my face at different points in my <laughs> life it's a trip mm -hmm. it's a total trip your pops He's a complicated guy. You didn't really have a relationship with him. Your mother was not a fan. And you're really open about this. And it was really refreshing to see. But how do you connect with all of his people when, you know, he's a complicated guy that you don't really have that much of a relationship with? Yeah, it hasn't been easy. The journey to doing the research for this book and trying to uncover the truth the real truth from the family narratives mm -hmm. with such complicated family members right is that that's probably the hardest part of doing work like this right it's much easier to go to national archives and like make the appointments and go in even like schlepping across the country you know and going in and sifting through those documents much easier than having to navigate dealing with people who don't necessarily want to talk to you, don't really want to spill the beans because it's these are really uncomfortable truths that we're dealing with. The one thing that I always tried to come back to when I was talking to my father or maybe some uncles who wanted to remain more private was that this story is much larger than any one of us, than myself, than my dad, than any particular individual, right? it gets to something that was larger that was happening in society, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? During that time periods. And my grandfather, my father's father understood this. Yeah. So my father's father, whose name was Long, which means dragon. And sometimes people called him pop or coach because he was <laughs> like the basketball coach in the neighborhood. He left his oral history at the Chinatown history project. And then he met this uh, the young reporter who had, uh, in the 70s, had just come back from Southeast Asia 
right. during the war. And he ended up like telling her our ancestor stories. And so she started working on that. So he had these ideas that our family stories were mm-hmm. interesting and were relevant, not just for us, but so that other people, when they read them, could go, ah, our families did similar things, right? We weren't through the same thing, too. So he had an idea of uh-huh. the story. What I was trying to tell people is I am trying to complete the story that mm-hmm. your father was trying to do, but ran out of time. That had to have worked. That had to. There's, there's a certain, you know, some of our elders, I'm sure they would have been delighted when you said that. <laughs> and I say that with respect, but you know exactly what I'm yeah. talking about <laughs> when I say that. Because part of what I think not necessarily a lot of folks outside of the community will think about, and you state it flat out in the book, is the Chinese population in America between 1880 and what's this year? Okay, 1920 dropped 25% when the population of the United States doubled. Yeah. That math is wild. And this is after, you know, vigilante mobs ran through Seattle and Eureka, California, and frankly, ran all of the Chinese out. There were, I mean, we're, (laughs) this is winding up to, yes, the Chinese Exclusion Act, which also ran until 1943. Right. And this legislation and the legacy of this legislation, it is wild. And we are living in a moment, as we all know, where it's a little complicated to be Asian American and lots of people are in their feelings about the community, whether they're members of the community or not. And it doesn't seem like we've made all that much progress to be honest, which is a slight exaggeration for storytelling effect. However, some days it doesn't feel like we've made all that much progress. So can you bring us through the history? Can you start us back in the 1800s and walk us through what that looked like? Basically, the roots of Chinese exclusion started long before Chinese exclusion was on the books. Chinese exclusion on the books ran from 1882 to 1943. But prior to that, we had Chinese people who were here, like my great-great-grandfather, arrived to work on the railroad. Prior to that, there were Chinese people who came to the American West um, to work, uh, you know, uh, during the gold rush, right? And it was actually a lot easier to get from China to the American West because it only took like a little less than a month by ship to come over. But before the railroad was built in 1869, after the Civil War, if you were in New York, it could take you upwards of three months, right, to get across by, you know, horse and and, and wagon. So it could take a long time. So when people like Chinese railroad workers, like my great-great-grandfather came over, they ended up completing the most difficult part of the Transcontinental Railroad. And when it was completed in 1869, it was a physical apparatus that unified the country. Now, from New York to get to California, it took about a week, right? And that was a marvelous thing. But unfortunately, what happened at the same time, like just after uh, the completion of the railroad, was there was this huge economic depression. At the time, they called it the Great Depression. With this economic hardship came droves of folks from the East Coast, some of them European immigrants, some of them just, you know, East Coasters, right, coming over to the American West. 
seeing Chinese people in manufacturing jobs that they considered their own. In the period in time in which my uncle comes over in 1886, over 200 towns in California pushed out their Chinese residents. Just prior to that, a couple of years prior to that, all this anti-Chinese sentiment ended up sinking its teeth into federal law, right, all the way on the East Coast in, in D.C. And they start the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. Chinese exclusion ended up halting our legal immigration for 61 years. And it also prevented us from a pathway towards citizenship in that period of time so that my family members could not and, and people like us could not vote out those laws. And to me, once I realized this, and once I realized actually there was a Naturalization Act of 1870 mm -hmm. that was also on the books, and folks argued, folks who were really heavily anti-Chinese argued against allowing Chinese people to have that pathway towards citizenship in 1870. So that was actually when I discovered that, I was even more infuriated. <laughs> One of the things I really appreciate about Mott Street and the way you tell the story is that you are invested. We get a lot of Ava in the best possible way throughout the book where you're just like, I can't believe I read this. I can't believe I just read this disgusting thing. I mean, eugenics comes into play, one of my favorite words. I mean, really, that word is still, and, and to be able to relate to you in that way as you're reading this, because it's not just history. It's other people talking about people who look like us. <laughs> right, mean, right, right. It's, it's wild painful. what people felt free and feel free to say. And you're just like, uh. But I want to go back to your uncle for a second, Decafoon. 1886. He becomes quite the dude. I mean, he ends up having, you know, quite a nice life and he marries a white woman, which mm -hmm. I didn't no was possible. I mean, anti-miscegenation laws were in place for a really long time. That's right. And it, but it, was, it was state to state. So in California, they would not have been able to get married. But in New York and Connecticut, there were no such laws. So they were able to get married in Connecticut and they meet at church. It's late in life. Um, it's actually second marriages for both of them. They are both more mature, right? Um, and they have this amazing, very, I don't know how to describe their relationship, but I, I, I often find their relationship quite inspiring. It's a very groovy story, and we're going to let listeners discover it on their own because there's some stuff that we neither of us was expecting. But I do want to talk about Elva, your great-grandmother, because she does lose her citizenship because she is married to a Chinese national, even though he's been in this, by the time they get married, he's been here for years. But can we talk about that for a second? Because she's certainly not the only person who, of non-Chinese background who married a Chinese person who right. then lost their citizenship, though it seems to have happened to women much more than to men. Right. Elva, then when they get married in 1903, mm -hmm. Chinese Exclusion Act is already several decades in. So she really takes a risk in terms of marrying into our family. Mm -hmm. Because her husband cannot gain, you know, American citizenship, right. right? And there were, you know, I talked to Elva's family, you know, in that 
period, it wasn't uncommon for families to disown their daughters for marrying outside mm -hmm, mm -hmm. of the race, right? But they don't, right? And she's still able to maintain a relationship with her family, even as she embraces being part of this Chinese American community. Mm -hmm. When Dek Foon, um, who's already sponsored over his his uh, nephew, who was my mm -hmm. great grandfather. Right. The two of them really, and then they started. They, and then you know, my grandfather and his his my grandma great grandmother come over, and like you know, they get married. Blah blah blah. Dek Foon and Aunt Elva really are the matriarch and the patriarch of the family. Okay. Right. And so there was a way that when I was growing up, I always saw pictures of Aunt Elva and was always like. Who is that white woman in the center of our family right. photographs, right? So at, some of it was like, that was one of the things that sparked my um, questions about who these people were, right, right, way back then. But unbeknownst to Alva, a couple of years later, after they get married, the government enacts legislation that basically says that American women's citizenship mm -hmm. will change upon marriage to her husband's, if the husband, and then if the husband is a, whatever his nationality right. is, her citizenship changes to his. And a lot of American women were taken aback by this. They didn't realize that it happened until years later when they tried to vote. And then they realized that they couldn't, right? Because they were now, you know, British or, you know, Italian or whatever. In our, the case of Aunt Elva, a white woman becomes Chinese. It's wild seeing it all in one place, right? Like we've we've both read Maxine Hong Kingston. We both love Maxine Hong Kingston. Yeah. I mean, Chinamen is an important, important book. It's also 40 years old. Mm -hmm. And part of me is looking at the gap. And, you know, plenty of people have tried to wrestle with our history, whatever that looks like. And again, I'm sort of using Asian American as a broader term because there are so many of us and you are very specifically writing about the Chinese American experience. But if I dip back and forth, that's just a verbal tick that I have. I, I do the same thing. Absolutely. Okay. It's, it was so liberating and fun in a way to read Mott Street, even though there are moments where I mean, my eyes were rolling back in my head or I was yelling at whatever you were yelling at. There was a lot of yelling while I was reading this book, but it's so important that we tell these stories. And, you know, our elders don't always want to tell. They don't even really want to tell us what they had for lunch some days. It's like, come on, you have yeah. to tell me this stuff. I need to know. And you talk about growing up in Queens and still being a first and only in a lot of rooms, which I was surprised by because I grew up in Massachusetts and yeah, I was first and only for a really, really crazy long time. <laughs> but Flushing, Queens, really? What? Yeah, Can we talk yeah about this for because second? where I grew up in Flushing was the southernmost end of Flushing. It's like you cross okay. the street and it's a different neighborhood. Got it. Okay. So when I was growing up, I really was the only Chinese American girl in the neighborhood. And I couldn't understand why when my family had been here for so many generations, right. if I did meet another Asian American, Chinese American on the yeah. East coast, whose roots ran as long as ours did mm -hmm. that 
we would wind up somehow to realize that we were related. I just didn't understand how how any of this could be. I just started asking a lot of questions. I was also really inspired by the work of Maxine Hunkingston by the time I was an undergrad. And I, I read all of her work. And I, that's when I actually started to continue to ask questions, but this time write them down. And that's when I also started to go to like, you know, at the time, before the internet and before <laughs> Google, yeah. right, you had to trek out to different places and do your research on your own, right? So I went out to Utah, to Salt Lake City to visit the genealogy library and tried to find information about our railroad worker. Doing that groundwork was really important, but so was asking the questions while people were still alive. Yeah. Always telling, you know, so I'm a professor. I'm Mm -hmm. always telling my creative writing students, please ask these questions of your family members now. If you wait too long, you will regret it. And also get a little context for whether or not they might be withholding information. (laughs) Right. That's part of it, honestly, is the withholding of information. I mean, the stuff that you puzzle through it's really fun following you through. Although you do also say that you camped on Angel Island with your family. And I understand that Angel Island is physically larger than my brain thinks it is, but all in the spirit of research, I respect. But let's describe Angel Island for folks who might not know what it is or haven't been there. Sure. So Angel Island is really is a detention center or it was a detention center. Some folks call it the Ellis Island of the West Mm. because that's where so many Asians came through. But in fact, it was really a detention center if you were Chinese. It could take like a really long time to process Mm -hmm. you. Um, So sometimes people got stuck there for a year. My family members, luckily, because they were merchant families, they had paperwork that enabled them, and they were able to hire lawyers that enabled them to get through Angel Island relatively quickly. Mm-hmm. But I still had family members that were there for a couple of weeks. My great-grandmother was pregnant when she got stuck on Angel Island. You just don't know when, it's like an interminable wait, right? You don't know when they're going to say, yes, you can go. So I really wanted to visit Angel Island. I found out that you could go camping there. Yeah. So we did a West Coast trip. My family right. and I, you know, I have a 10-year-old daughter, but at the mm-hmm. time she was three. And <laughs> we went camping there. It was actually very beautiful, but okay. to walk through the detention center um, right. was really quite haunting. And so my great-grandmother, uh, her two children, my grandfather is seven years old at the time is stuck there and they're separated from their father, right? They separated the men from the women. And if the children were young enough, they got to stay with their mothers. But if they were over 12, they had to stay in, and their boys had to stay in the men's camp. So it's a physically beautiful place, but it's so isolated. And and you have a wonderful view of Alcatraz. <laughs> of course. <laughs> right? Um, you're, you really are stuck there. So I just found it nothing short of haunting. At the time, too, the medical examination area mm-hmm. was closed off. Um, now I believe you can visit right. it. But that's also very chilling. 
Right. Because I mean, the other thing that I uncovered at the time was that the medical examiner of San Francisco was a big time eugenicist. Oh, nice. And when I discovered that and I saw, you know, the ways in which, you know, immigrants were checked um, and could be deported for things that were treatable, diseases that were treatable, it broke my heart. Yeah. You know, that whole idea of who's clean and who's dirty and who's an animal and who's not like that language doesn't change. And all I can think is, okay, so we're dirty and we're animals and yet we do your laundry. Okay, cool. It's wild to me how little the language changes, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. you know, and how like, you know, we talk about Japanese internment and I'm like, oh, you mean incarceration? Okay. Same thing. Like if you go to Manzanar, like no one's escaping from Manzanar. <laughs> like right. you don't, you're not walking off and hitting a 7-Eleven and jumping on a bus. <laughs> There's right, no water, is, but you're not doing desert. it. Yeah. How have the cousins responded to the book? The cousins are very excited about good. it. Good, good, good. They should be. <laughs> but the ones who talk to me. Yeah, yeah. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah. So the cousins in general are really excited about it. My extended uncles are really excited about it. Whether or not my immediate family, like my mm-hmm. father um, and his family, like whether they're excited about it. I do not know. I suspect probably not. We write these stories because we need to tell Mm -hmm. our personal truths, but we also need to tell the truth of larger society as we see it. It's not just a story about myself or the individual family members. And that's the thing. If we don't tell these stories, someone else is going to do it. And you know what? They don't always get the details right. Even if they're well-intentioned, you don't always get the details right. So we may as well just do it ourselves. And sometimes, you know, we get it right. And sometimes we get it wrong too. But whatever, we have to try. Like, we can't just sit in the corner and say, well, if we stay quiet, then we're fine. I mean. Right, exactly. Look what's staying quiet. (laughs) Not a good idea. (laughs) There, You know, there need to be more of these stories out there. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you a couple, well. It's not even a couple of years ago now. It's uh, maybe more than 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. I knew Iris Chang. Oh, yeah. And we had both graduated from the writing seminars at Johns Hopkins. I was certainly a fan of her work. Yeah. And we met when Iris was um, at the LA Times Book Festival. And I was a graduate student. And mm-hmm. I was telling her about the work that I was doing, even back then, I was trying to do an iteration of Mott Street, right? Yeah, okay. And so I had tried to write it as a novel, mm-hmm. and it wasn't really working. But I knew that there was a story there. Right. That's the thing about the story. I always knew that there was a story there. I couldn't figure out the frame exactly. Mm-hmm. But I was telling, I met Iris, and I was telling her about how I was working on this book. Mm-hmm. She said to me, Ava, we need more Chinese-American stories. Yeah. When did you know you wanted to be a writer, though? Because you've, I mean, from everything I can tell from the book and having spoken to you a couple of times, it feels like you've always known. Yeah, I did. I was always writing as a kid. I was always writing. And I was always listening to the family stories. I couldn't get away from being fascinated by these family stories. And for whatever reasons, like my cousins weren't asking lots of questions the same way I was. Maybe it was because I came from a fractured family because, you know, my dad wasn't in the picture. So it made me ask more questions. It made me, I don't know, feel not so comfortable in the status quo. So I I was just constantly asking questions. 
And then when my grandmother would bring out her big, her big family photo albums, mm-hmm. that to me was enormous amounts of funds. And we just sit there for hours going over the pictures. Okay, that's your grandmother Rose. Yeah, you spent a lot of time. So Grandma Rose and Grandpa Jean, they met at a movie theater. <laughs> I love this story. Would you tell the story? Because it's it's very sweet. And and Grandpa Jean was a little persistent, which is adorable. Yeah. So so my grandmother was the first woman in her family to go to college. So she's like the little smarty pants of the community. She was the salutatorian of her elementary junior high school. She goes to a great high school that is like the equivalent of Stuyvesant, but Stuyvesant was boys only, right? So she goes to a really good co-ed high school that was very competitive. And then she makes it into Hunter College, right? But when she graduates from Hunter, she finds that she can't really find a job, right? That what year is that? 1939 or so. Okay. So it's in the okay. early 40s mm-hmm. that she's looking for jobs. She even takes a secretarial position. Mm-hmm. And when the women there find out that she has a college degree, the other secretaries turn on her. She's a banker's daughter, right? And she's very persistent. She wants to, you know, earn her own keep. And on the side, she one of her side gigs is that she is a ticket taker at the movies, right? At a movie theater on the Bowery. By the way, the, the whole area is like papered over. Where she sits, her little ticket booth is papered right. over. So no, nobody can see her and she can't see anybody either. Right. Put the money in. And, you know, if you're, if, you're, if you're purchasing a ticket, you put the money in and that ticket shoots out and with your change. And then you go on your way. One day, she hears this voice, this deep, resonant voice, asking for a ticket. She ends up giving the ticket um, and the change, and she sees an eye looking at her, right? <laughs> Peering through the little, the little hole in the bottom. She's like, who is that? You know, it, it was interesting. And then, and then my grandfather goes into the movie theater, but he was very persistent, and he goes back over and over again, just to, you know, be able to get this glimpse of my grandmother. And then eventually he works up the courage to ask her out and he is able to walk her home. And then the rest is history. Right. And they were married for a really long time, right? Yeah. Yeah, they were. They were. It's so funny because for the longest time, my grandmother didn't want to talk about that story. She's like, Mm -hmm. why do you want to talk about this old stuff for anyway? And I was like, grandma, it's really interesting. You know, it's a great story. It's such a good story. It also brings me to a couple of writers that I'm very fond of that you've studied with. I mean, Grandma Rose, not the only woman who's, you know, had a little hand in the directing your your career and your life and your subject matter. But Sarah Schulman and Alice Elliott Dark are just two of my favorite, favorite, favorite writers for very different reasons. Yes. But can we talk about what you've learned from both of them? Because I just want to work them into the show so we can shout them out. Because why not? So I (laughs) was first aware of Sarah Schulman as an undergrad. Mm -hmm. But the Mm -hmm. same period in time when I'm reading Maxine Honkingston, I and and, um, African-American and Latino writers, right? I was also introduced to the writing of Sarah Schulman. I couldn't get enough. So fast forward decades later, I end up landing my position at CUNY. I'm a professor at CUNY. I'm an associate professor of creative nonfiction. And I wind up in the same department as 
as our hero, Sarah Shulman, <laughs> whose work I've always admired since then, and I continue to admire. So prodigious in her output, whether it's amazing plays or oral histories of ACT UP and the AIDS crisis, right, to her fiction, which she continues to write today. So I'm continuously inspired by the great Sarah Shulman. And Alice Elliott Dark, I never studied with, but Alice oh, okay. is a good friend of mine. We met under the pandemic, Stacey Drasmo. Oh, she's great. She's yeah. wonderful. A wonderful novelist. She brought a bunch of us together, a bunch of us women writers mm-hmm. together to meet weekly, to talk about our writing process under the pandemic. And that's how I met the amazing Alice Elliott Dart. She is the bomb, without a doubt. She's the bomb, that so woman. So great. So great. I'm um, currently uh, still reading Fellowship Point and loving it. And go slowly. Go slowly. It's, I love those women. I really, and, you know, I do have some women in my family who <laughs> remind me quite a lot mm-hmm. of the ladies of Fellowship Point, but I think I'm just fond of the book because Alice wrote it. <laughs> great I don't think it's quite. Oh, right. I've had aunts like that. <laughs> great writer. So let's talk about some other influences, though, because you've always known you wanted to be a writer. You have worked with some really amazing talents. You teach, which I love because, I mean, we can also learn from our own students kind of thing. And yeah. Maxine Hong Kingston always. But there has to be more. Oh, sure. So there's so many writers that I love. I think more recently, even as I was working on Mob Street, mm-hmm. really influenced by the work of Sadia Hartman. Oh, yeah. Wayward Lives, right? And Lose Your Mother. Mm-hmm. And then Lose Your Mother first and then Wayward Lives. And I feel like the things that she does in Wayward Lives is is incredible. When you're working in nonfiction, where you're doing deeply researched nonfiction work, right? Narrative nonfiction work. Mm-hmm. You encounter, right, these archives when you're working with marginalized communities and the archives of marginalized communities. Mm-hmm. Number one, oftentimes archives don't even exist. Right. When they do, oftentimes they reflect the discrimination and the racism mm-hmm. and the prejudices of the time period. Mm-hmm. And there were so many times when I was working on Mott Street that I really felt like I was being hit and like punched in the gut mm-hmm. when I would open up an archive and start reading through it. Because, you know, it was like straight up 19th century, you know, discriminatory viewpoints. So getting back to Sadia Hartman, I really, mm-hmm. really appreciate the work that she's done. And I think that my students are often just completely inspired by her. I, I adore her. I'm currently reading Washu's Stay True. I love that book. I love that book in so many ways. And I also really just love seeing his byline in The New Yorker. Yeah. Because it's not Henry. It's not Harry. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, it's just Washu. And I'm just like, yes, you're writing for The New Yorker under your own name. Right. <laughs> I That's love right. that so right. much. And it feels like such a tiny thing. And yet, really, like, when you're used to having people say, where are you from? What does your name mean? Like all of those things where you just kind of roll your eyes and try and gauge how polite you need to be in your response. 
So I just started Stay True yeah. and okay. I'm totally loving it as well. It is so. it is so much fun. But talk about like, you know, a kind of skate punky zine making mm-hmm. music guy. Like it's just, it's a delight to see all of us sort of being who we are, right? Like right. just human beings doing our stuff though. I just, I want everyone to read Mott Street. I really, really want everyone to read this book. I don't care what your background is. It's just when you're dealing with family history and all right, let's call it family mythology, because in a lot of cases, that's what it is. Yeah. The truth of the family mythology and putting it into context. Our elders do what they do. They believe what they believe. They're who they are. But at the same time, like some of them don't even have the full context. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. There are these family stories Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. get passed down from generation to generation. And it's up to us, the current generation, to investigate, well, how true is this? <laughs> yeah, <How laughs> that's a big is, part of it. <laughs> yeah, how much is in an embellishment? Right. How much of it is a perpetuation of mm-hmm. like these old ideas? Right. That, and, and you have to decide like what's relevant for today. What I realized is that, you know, there's a kernel of truth in so many of the family stories that got passed yep. down, but there was a much larger context to why it was that people reacted the way that they did. And a lot of the times it's hi- hiding right there in plain sight, but we're just, you know, too busy, you know, dealing with our own issues that we have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. There's something about being able to just sit with those stories and do the research Mm-hmm. right? From English language archives. Right. Um, I even went to China right? Right, right, right? as a Fulbrighter. I dragged the family um, to China so that I could get closer to our villages. And I interviewed villagers there. Mm-hmm. And I was able to go into the archives there. And I'm not very well read in Chinese, by the way. So, you know, I, but I'm very resourceful. So I'm right. a whole team of people that were able to, to translate things for me. Just going through all of those documents enabled me to understand, well, what is the truth for myself as I see it? Right. Knowing, but, but doing all of that research, doing mm-hmm. all of the work, both in the English language um, archives, as well as the Chinese mm-hmm. archives, right? And then stacking it up against the family stories. That's that's really, I feel like, where the real magic was. It's clear that there's a lot of work and a lot of love that has gone into this book. I really love Mont Street. Ava Chen, thank you so much for joining us on Port Over. And more importantly, thank you for writing Mont Street. It's out now. Oh, thank you, Miwa. It's been great to be here with you. Hello, readers. Thanks for tuning in to our special Double Shot episode. This is your TBR Top Off, where we recommend a couple of books to pick up when you stop in for your copies of the featured books today. I'm Mark coming to you from my Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati, and I'm joined by my book buddy, Jamie. Hello. Hi, Mark. I'm here in Leewood, Kansas at my Barnes & Noble. So we've got a couple of great books to jump into. Jamie, I'm going to have you go ahead and jump in first with a recommendation for Ordinary Notes. All right. So um, Christina Sharp in her um, prior book, Before Ordinary Notes, had written about um, how life as a Black American is shaped by having to live in the long wake of the slave ship. And that to be here now is to have passed through that ongoing trauma of slavery. 
and everything that's come since. And in ordinary notes, she assembles these notes in a really compelling kind of stacking format, right? So every note builds on the next and you feel the weight of all of this as you push on through that book. And her assemblage of notes and letters and film and essays and photographs reminded me of a beautiful, overstuffed, coffee table-sized book called Black Futures, which was edited by the curator Kimberly Drew and a writer, Jenna Wortham. So Wortham and Drew came together online in 2014, and they kind of found each other's voices sort of rising up through all the noise of Tumblr and Twitter and They were seeing art and activism and writing about Black life, and they thought to bring a lot of it together into a Black art zine, and they ended up starting a website. And in the prologue, they said that they sought to define what does it mean to be Black and alive right now. And they attempted to do that by bringing together writings, tweets, fine art, (laughs) memes, interviews, playlists, DMs, screenshots of DMs. Uh, There's even recipes and there is a forum for all Black Sims players of the video games, uh, The Sims. So a lot of different things collected together in this book. And in the book, Drew calls um, Blackness part of a continuum. And this book is treated the same way by the editors. They tell you to pick it up and start where you please. In fact, they encourage you to read it with your phone in your hand so that as you're turning the pages and seeing all of these contributions, you can seek out each of the um, over 100 contributors and get to know them outside the works that they collected for the book. Um, There are many fascinating contributors ranging from philosophers to hairstylists to the founders of Black Lives Matter. This is a weighty, physically weighty book. It's 500 pages of just treasure. And they collected all of it between 2014 and 2020. And it's, well, it's not explicitly uh, American, it will feel really particularly relevant to us because it was assembled at the height of these horrifying police shootings and amid the loudest cries for justice, calling out anti-Blackness and working toward recovery. This book is very visual. It's visceral. It will make you both smile and cry. It's one that you definitely want to lay your hands on. Spend a long weekend digging in and doing some work and learning from these two thoughtful women who have presented us with this dynamic collaboration. Such a good pick. I love that book so much. I think Black Futures is one of those that I wish was sitting on every coffee table in the country. I just it's so special and so fun to absorb uh, and also so powerful. I love it. Ah, Good pick. I get to pick something to recommend for Ava Chin's Mott Street, which I'm very excited to read. But it made me think of a former Barnes & Noble Discover pick, and that is Sour Heart by Jenny Zhang. Oh my god, I love this book. It is a short story collection that really just smacked me in the face in a beautiful, beautiful way. The stories focus on young women and girls who are children of Chinese immigrants, specifically in the 90s in New York. Each, of course, are different. The sets of circumstances, these girls, these families have different dynamics, but the connecting thread is focused on themes of family and heritage and this quest for a sense of place. These girls are written with a lot of nuance and a lot of honesty. 
they are loving and cruel and obnoxious and brave and all of them just are aching to belong. Zing speaks really well to a very specific and complicated dynamic that children of immigrant parents often face where they have a very real and potent gratitude for their parents' sacrifices and their stories and their journeys that battles with a very real and potent urge to break away and be their own person in their own world. And I think this headbutt is handled with such a lovely tenderness. And I think Singh's writing style has a rawness to it, but it it feels so sweet and loving that I think Sour Heart is just probably the perfect title for this because some of these girls are just your very, very typical teenagers that you kind of just want to scream at, but you want to embrace them and let them know that they're going to be okay. I think this collection is masterful. And uh, for a voice that I had never really seen before, just come out of the woodwork a few years back, I think Sour Heart is just one of those special books that comes out every so often that you think, I'm going to take notice of everything she does for the rest of my life. So check out anything Jenny Zhang, but specifically Sour Heart. That's all we have for today. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pour It Over. Uh, please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us on our socials at Barnes & Noble. I'm Mark. You can follow my home store at BN Westchester. And I'm Jamie. You can follow my home store at BN Leewood KS. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Happy reading. Bye. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.